from Psalm 77. And Aaron Ferguson, who's one of our interns, um, and has preached a number of times here, is going to be preaching in Psalm 77. So if you would, stand with me and we'll read from God's Word. It's on page 488 in the, the Bible in front of you. It'll be on the screen as, as well. It should be. So Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of all. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your ministry deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O oh God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock in the hand of Moses and Aaron. I'm going to call Aaron up and I'll, I'll pray for him. Thank you, Father, um, for your goodness of, of meeting us um, where we're at in our pain and sadness and sorrow um, for um, giving us hope. Um, we weep, but we don't weep without hope. And I pray that as Aaron preaches your word today, as we just hear your word to us, that um, we would sense um, not only the, the, the freedom, the, 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 the ability to just uh, be real before you, but just the call to, to peace, to hope, to joy in you and your son, what you've given, what you've provided, Lord. Um, open our hearts to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, like Kevin said, um, and you probably might have noticed this while we were reading through the psalm, but this is uh, a psalm of lament. It's not a psalm that ends without hope, though. Um, and also, like Kevin said, um, the psalms really do run the gamut of human experience, human emotion, the good times, the praise, but also the difficult times. And... I think this is a psalm for difficult times. Um, I'll be honest, as I was reading it, as I was studying it, and as I was writing it, there were just so many times where I thought, man, this is, this is tough. Um, and so, just but to start out, I want to kind of pose this question to you. What do you do or where do you go when you're in the midst of a crisis of faith? 
or when your whole life might seem like a waking nightmare. Have you ever met someone, talked to someone who has sleep paralysis, who suffers from sleep paralysis? I was eating lunch with one of my coworkers at the taco shop uh, you know, several weeks back. Uh, she told me I could share this with you guys. Uh, but she was telling me about how sometimes she experiences sleep paralysis and then also some of these you know, nightmare-type things that can go along with that. Um, and not to be too glib or whatever, but sleep paralysis is kind of exactly what it sounds like. Um, she said that she'll you know, wake up in the middle of the night and be totally unable to move. Uh, no part of her body. She's not able to get up, anything like that. And a lot of times, these moments of paralysis will be accompanied by um, you know, I don't know if it's a dream or an imagination or something like that, but she'll see, she'll have these nightmares of people, shadowy figures moving around her room, uh, sometimes moving close to her. Um, and I thought that's really scary. Uh, and so I went to do some more research, learn some more about this. And apparently that's kind of a common occurrence for, it's a common dream type thing to have uh, if you also get sleep paralysis. But it's, it's witnessing something terrifying, possibly even traumatic, watching it happen and not being able to do anything about it. A literal waking nightmare. And maybe you haven't ever had uh, sleep paralysis or those kinds of dreams that go along with it, but have you ever felt that similar kind of helplessness? Living through something terrifying or traumatic Watching it all happen, but you know there's not anything you can do to stop it. And if you're shaking your head right now, I'm going to find you after the gathering and ask what you've been doing or where you've been in the last 18 months. To think about the kind of physical, emotional, spiritual stress that such situations put on us, uh, the writer of Psalm 77, he's living one of those waking nightmare situations. There's nothing at all he can do to fix it. If you track, if you track the headings throughout the book of Psalms, you'll see it's subdivided into five books. Um, together, they form kind of a poetic retelling of Israel's whole story. And in book three, where this psalm is situated, one of the major themes is Israel's exile and captivity. Uh, and I think it's safe to assume that the destruction of the temple the carrying off of the people is one of the things that sparks the writing of this psalm. And it's kind of hard sometimes for us to imagine uh, that experience and empathize with those ancient Israelites because it's easy for us to think that the temple was just some kind of ancient church building, a place where ancient Jews would gather together and worship God, pretty much like what we're doing now. And they did do that, uh, but the temple was a whole lot more than that. Um, you know, God forbid this would ever happen, but if the, the brick and mortar structure that sits at 606 Ridgeway Avenue were to crumble or be deconstructed tomorrow, uh, would we be devastated? Yes, absolutely. Would we be homeless as a congregation? Absolutely. But I don't think, at least I hope not, that our whole spiritual worldview would come crumbling down or be deconstructed as well. Because 
we know that this building is just that. It's mostly just a building. An important building in many of our lives. You know, weddings and baptisms and funerals take place here. Uh, but we know that for Christians, Jesus is with us all the time in our hearts by his spirit that lives in us. We have constant access and communion with our king. But it wasn't like that for the ancient Israelites. Instead of taking place in their hearts, that all happened in the temple. <clears throat> it was the place where the people of God met with God, where their sins were atoned for. It was the central location of their religious worldview, and quite literally, the place where heaven and earth overlapped. So when that all came crashing down, the result is major spiritual trauma. The result is the first half of Psalm 77. <clears throat> Take a look back in your Bibles with me, verses 1 through 4. He says, I cry aloud to God. In my day of trouble, I seek the Lord. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. <clears throat> I'm sure over the last year and a half, uh, there have been times where you can relate to those feelings. Or you can relate to that pain. Maybe it was you or a friend or a family member who got COVID uh, and got really sick from that. Maybe you or a friend or a family member uh, lost a job because of the pandemic and has had a hard time finding something, back, uh, finding something new. <clears throat> Maybe it's been the pain of politics and you know, more division between friends and family than any time in recent memory. Or maybe you look at the headlines every day when you eat your breakfast and you're just bewildered as you see things unfolding in Afghanistan with war and the Taliban and all the refugees that now are being forced from their homes. <clears throat> and beyond what's happening right now in our world, I know that many of us in here have dealt with our own personal times of pain or trauma. Friends, these are days of trouble. Is your soul uncomfortable? Has your spirit fainted? Are you too troubled to speak, not knowing what you could or even should say about any of this? The psalmist had his eyes held open to witness all of it, yet could not do a thing about it. He's living a waking nightmare and paralyzed in the face of it all. These are days of trauma for many. If you're familiar with the psalms, though, um, you may be ready to guess where this is going, where the writer's going to go next. He's going to look back, and he's going to look back to the past for consolation. Look at verses 5 and 6. I consider the days of old, years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. And in most of the psalms of lament, this, is, this looking back, this remembrance is kind of a turning point. But look where he focuses in this remembering process. He says, I remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. My spirit made a diligent search. Usually, the following verses will become praise. But he focuses inward when he's at his lowest. So instead, we're jerked right back into the pain and the doubt that ensues when we think we know who God is, but what we see in the world 
doesn't make sense in light of that. Uh, I'll be honest, when I first read this song, it was tough, really tough to read these next few verses with these questions. Um, I've always found you know, the crucifixion narratives really difficult to read through. Uh, and I think this is probably the next toughest kind of passage for me. Here, the psalmist doubts and his fears in the next few verses. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? It's troubling, it's terrifying to think of a world where those questions would be answered with a yes. Um, a while back, Pastor Kevin turned me on to this band. They're called Poor Bishop Hooper. They're really good musicians. I really enjoyed listening to them. One of the projects they're currently working on is making a modern song out of every song, uh, a song inspired by every song, often using a lot of the language. It's uh, kind of the goal anyway. And this is how they paraphrase these questions of doubt in their rendition of Psalm 77. <clears throat> Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never love again? Has he forgotten to be gracious? Has his promise come to an end? How many of you have asked those questions before? They're difficult and they're dark. And you know, sometimes in our Bibles, uh, the writers will ask these rhetorical questions and then immediately give us the answer. Paul loves to do this. Uh, he does it in Romans a lot. Uh, you might remember the passage where he says, you know, should we sin more and more so that we get more and more grace? And then the very next verse says, no, like absolutely not. Uh, that's not how this song goes. We read these questions, we even ask them ourselves, and then say la. The word, this word at the end of verse 9 is a really interesting one. It appears almost exclusively in the book of Psalms. And it's kind of hard to translate, which is why it's just left in as the Hebrew word, say la. But most people think this word, used in the middle of a psalm, means something like a pause. Or an interview. So the author asks these questions and then just lets them sit in the air for a while. There's no, uh, we don't have any idea how long this pause would have lasted, but there's a pause. When the Delta variant emerges and COVID cases in our country start to rise again, when it's been a whole year and you can't find the job that you need, when you can't have a peaceful conversation with the people you were once so close with. When war and terrorism uh, threaten our brothers and sisters in the Middle East and then leave thousands of other people needing a new home in another part of the world. Will the Lord reject forever and never again be kind? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises done for? Has he forgotten to be gracious and in anger stopped being compassionate? Like the psalmist guides us, let's take a short moment and just sit in those difficult questions.
I know this sermon's been really depressing so far. But it, it is important, I think it's important to know that the Bible doesn't shy away from things like this. It doesn't shy away from the brutal parts of our lives. The Holy Spirit and the biblical authors start with the fact that we live in a world filled with sin. One where people's desires and their choices and their actions do real harm to real people and to our world. And it's tempting, it's tempting to believe that God isn't good, or that he isn't in control, or that he isn't with us. But it's also important to know that the Bible's story and this psalm doesn't end here. We have to keep on reading, and we'll find some hope. As we look at verses 10 through 18, the psalms will do some more remembering. But this time, the remembering will not be inward. It'll be a remembering of God's power. Contrast uh, verses 6 with verses 11 through 12. They should both be on the screen. Remember in verse 6, I said, let me remember my song of the night. Let me meditate in my heart. But then later, verses 11 and 12, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. And the focus shifts drastically. In these next eight verses, the psalmist details God's mightiest work that you can think of, the Exodus. The mighty deeds, the wonders works, God making his might known among the nations, redeeming the children of Jacob, and then finally disrupting the waters by parting the Red Seas. That's a big part of his comfort that God has demonstrated, shown himself to be faithful to his people through any trial and by any means. That's a big part of his comfort, that God has demonstrated those things. When the psalmist experienced the trauma of life and doubt towards God, he responds by remembering God's power, His sovereignty, and the testimony of His faithfulness. So, how does this apply to us? Do we look back to the Exodus? Well, sure, we certainly can. All of Scripture, the whole Bible, is available to us as a testament of God's power and holiness. For the psalmist, the Exodus is the most formative story for him and his people. For us, though, we ultimately look back to the cross and to the resurrection of Jesus. When we get to those moments, we see the pinnacle of God's power and his love for us. When we experience the pain and the trauma of life and doubt God's love for us, we can remember and rest in God's power and in Jesus' Jesus's salvation and preservation of us. When life is at its lowest, when we're asking those dark and doubtful questions about how we relate to God, we remember that empty tomb. It gives us proof, a validation of these other promises in Scripture, like Hebrews 13. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And Paul's famous rhetorical question in Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We have promises that God will not leave us, and that nothing can take him from us. Nothing can take us from him. And then finally, cars. 
these last two verses. Uh, I wanted to specifically camp out on those for just a minute as we wrap up, because I think while they probably fit in that previous section, uh, there is a bit of a focus shift. In the previous eight verses, we saw God's power. And then in these last two, we see more about his faithfulness, the purpose of his power. God led his people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. But look not, don't just look that God led them, but how he led them. Through the sea, through the great waters. Carter's Church, God is powerful and faithful to lead you through pain and trauma in life. Through, but rarely out of. There are many times in the Bible and in our own lives, or there are some, there are some times in the Bible and in our own lives, when God will suddenly or miraculously intervene to remove us from trouble or danger or trial. But more often than not, God will be there with us in the trauma and see us through those moments. That's the path that Jesus walked. So it's the path we should expect to walk. Carsh Church, I want you to hear this one last thing before we close. Our God is in the business of redeeming trauma. He's in the business of redeeming those who have experienced trauma, and even in the business of redeeming those who have traumatized others. Think of all of our primary Christian symbols. They're not beautiful because of what they are, but because of how they've been redeemed. I heard a Mennonite brother say this recently. The cross, a tool of public shame and execution. It's a symbol of violence, primarily, but redeemed because it's also the place where my sins and your sins were once and for all atoned for. <coughs> Baptism, where we pantomime immersing someone into the ground, their grave, but redeemed bringing them back up by the power of Jesus and his resurrection life. And the Lord's Supper. We say this every week when we take it. It's a body broken and blood poured out. These are traumatic. These are symbols of trauma, but they've been redeemed. And with the Lord's Supper, it's redeemed because the meal represents our covenant relationship with Jesus and the promise that will one day eat with him in his kingdom. Friends, our God is in the business of redeeming trauma and brokenness. And if you believe that, if you believe in Jesus' atoning death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, if you've given your allegiance to him as king, then you are a Christian. And if you're a baptized Christian, I want to invite you to participate in the Lord's Supper with us this morning. Now, I don't say that second part just to stiff arm or exclude people. Um, if you're not a baptized believer, I want you to take this meal with us later. Uh, if you're not a Christian, the Lord's Supper is about remembering. And you can't remember something that you haven't experienced yet. If you're a believer but you haven't been baptized, 
I want you to do that first. Because the Lord's Supper is about celebration. But you can't celebrate something you haven't publicly identified with. And the way we observe the Lord's Supper here at Cars is with these individually portioned um, cups of bread and juice. If you haven't grabbed one of these yet, they're on tables in the back. You can grab one of those. And as the band starts to come up, I'm going to pray, and then we'll move into a time of taking the supper together. God, we know that you are good, and that you're in control, and that you're with us. We know you're even with us in our pain, and our heart, and our hurt, and in our trauma. God, would you make your presence and your power known to us in those dark moments. Empower us by your spirit to trust you more and to put our hope in Jesus and his resurrection. God, as we take the supper together this morning, we give you thanks for all you've done for us. For the cross, for the empty tomb, for making us family through Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.